Welcome to the Ignatius Press Podcast. I'm Mark Brumley. I hope you enjoy the discussion in this episode. For more information about Ignatius Press, check out our website at ignatius.com. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another installment of Ignatius Press Live, where we bring you, we're bringing you another interview with one of our illustrious authors. Uh, my name is Paul Sins with Ignatius Press, and today we're speaking with Dr. Michael Barber, uh, author of, of uh, well, several books at this point, but today we're talking about The True Meaning of Christmas, published by Ignatius Press and the Augustine Institute. Uh, Dr. Barber is Professor of Scripture and Theology at the Augustine Institute in Denver, Colorado. Uh, one of his other books, also published by Ignatius Press and the Augustine Institute, that you may have seen is Salvation, What Every Catholic Should Know, um, which is the, that's a, a great one, part of this What Every Catholic Should Know series that you, uh, everybody should check out. In addition to teaching um, academic research and publishing, he also gives popular-level presentations at Catholic conferences, parish events and such around the United States. So, uh, Dr. Barber, welcome. Thanks for having me with you. It's a delight to be here. All right. And remember, those of you who are watching, if you have any questions, feel free to throw them into the uh, comments uh, if you're on Facebook or uh, on YouTube. I think it's in the, the live chat uh, box, uh, and we'll do our best to get to those. So the first question I always like to ask when I'm when I'm talking to an author about their book is how did the book come about? You know, where did the idea come from? How did it, how long were you writing it? All that sort of stuff. Tell us the story of the book. Well, I am a, a New Testament scholar. And one of the things that I have wanted to do for quite a while is write a really in-depth treatment of the infancy narratives in the gospels. Uh, I have uh, the books you mentioned with Ignatius. I also have a book coming out with Cambridge university press uh, on the historical Jesus and the Gospel of Matthew. I'm really interested, especially in, in, in the synoptic Gospels. And so uh, I've done a lot of work on the infancy narratives and was thinking the long term, I'd, I'd do a, you know, maybe a two volume work on this. And then COVID hit. And so many people seem to stop going to church because of COVID. And um, I feel like this is a really kind of important year, a pivotal year, because the restrictions, at least on churches, have largely been lifted. And so um, my concern is that if people don't come back to church at Christmas this time, we may never see them again. <laughs> and I really believe that there are lots of people who love Christmas. I'm certainly one of them. Uh, I have a lifelong um, devotion, if you will, to the Christmas season. Really, really love um, the biblical story, and then also all the customs that are associated with Christmas. And so uh, for me, I, I, I feel bad every year when I read these stories uh, that you always see on the internet about people being depressed at Christmas, people feeling like Christmas has been a letdown. And I really believe that the more you understand how Christmas's home is found in the story of the Bible, the better we can in a sense, come home at Christmas. And I find that a lot of people um, think, well, they don't know as much about Christmas and its customs as they think they do. And in fact, as I discovered, as I wrote the book and researched it, there is a lot of unreliable information about there, out there about Christmas. And I was shocked at how much that I thought I knew I didn't know. And, and so, um, 
yeah, I, you know, I thought I knew things that turn out to be legends or, yeah. you know, just, you know, the 12 days of Christmas are originally some kind of encoded message for Catholics and the persecution. There's no evidence for that, you know. <laughs> so I've been told that my whole life. Uh, so things like that, and especially understanding the, the biblical story. So really have a, uh, a desire to help people fall in love with Bible study and uh, seems like everybody wants to talk about Jesus at Christmas time. So yeah. this is a great way to bring these two things together. So as much as I wanted to do the scholarly work first, and I will, I still want to do that eventually. Um, I, I really felt like now was the time for a book on Christmas. Yeah. But you mentioned everybody's seems willing to talk about Jesus at Christmas. Mm -hmm. You know, they, they say that you should never talk about religion and politics and company, you know, but mm -hmm. I, Come Christmas time, you see those "Keep Christ and Christmas" banners all over the place. You know, people are Certainly. much more willing to, to dive into. So the book is called "The True Meaning of Christmas." That's right. So what there's a picture of it here. Yeah, there, there we go. go. Right there. Um, all right. So the true meaning of Christmas. What is the uh, uh, what is the false meaning of Christmas that the book is responding <laughs> to? Well, I'm not really getting into all the false meanings. I mean, I, I, I really there are lots of false meanings. I should say. You know, one thing that I discovered, I, I set out to write the book and I, I understood just from casual reading and casual research. What I mean by that is Googling things, right, which is not real research. Yeah. Uh, but I, I understood from doing that kind of thing that um, a lot of people believe that the Christmas tree, for example, come from pre-Christian. It comes from a pre-Christian European pagan festival called Yule. And, you know, the more you look at Christmas and accounts of the origins of Christmas customs, you'll see Yule pop up from time to time. And so I know as I was outlining the book, I had this section on Yule that I was going, okay, I'll, I'll research this and get into it. Then when I really started to study it, I realized we don't know much at all about this pre-Christian festival called Yule uh, <laughs> because it was celebrated by barbarians, people who were illiterate. So they didn't write things down. So what do we know about Yule? Well, basically, a lot of the things that are said about Yule and these these meanings of Yule, really, they, a lot of it comes from people writing in the 1800s, especially in Germany. And you see what happens is it's kind of like Chekhov on Star Trek, if you're a Star Trek fan, right? Chekhov is always saying, oh, this is from Russia. This is from Russia. Yeah, everything's from Russia. Well, in the 1800s, you have a lot of... German writers trying to, you know, show that basically everything is German. And of course, by the time the Nazis rise to power, they, they make use of that kind of literature and uh, those kinds of perspectives. And they want to sort of separate Christmas from Christ. And so they're really playing up these, these supposed Yule connections of Christmas. But we really don't know much about Yule at all on the Christmas tree uh, is best rooted, not in this pre-Christian pagan festival, but in medieval Christianity, see what happened is uh, they would do these plays to help people understand the Bible. And a major character in the play, major figure in the play is actor, is, is Adam, right? And the actor who played Adam would carry a tree as a kind of prop to symbolize, of course, the, the tree of knowledge. And um, they would perform these plays on the feast day of Adam and Eve. Now, it wasn't part of the official calendar, universal calendar, but especially in Europe, the feast of Adam and Eve was celebrated on, guess what, December 24th. 
And so they would do these plays and the tree became not just a prop in the play, but they would decorate them and, and, and display them as a kind of elaborate exhibition. And what would happen is there were these guilds, these trade guilds that would promote these plays and pay for the plays, sponsor the plays. And in doing that, they would raise their profile in the community. So they would put up these elaborate displays of the tree and they decorate it with apples to symbolize the tree of knowledge and also wafers to symbolize the Eucharist oftentimes. Mm -hmm. And so the Christmas tree really is about the biblical, it really highlights the biblical origins of Christmas. And, you know, I didn't really know that until I set out to research it. Uh, and there are a lot of books out there that have unreliable information in it that is really backed up by, by, by careful scholarship. So um, that was something that for me was pretty meaningful because it, it shows us, again, just the important connection between Christmas and our celebration of it and the biblical story. Yeah. And you bring up an interesting point about uh that that was something that you hadn't realized until you were writing the book. And that's always something that fascinates me too, is, um, you know, you set out to write a book and you learn quite a bit yourself. So was there anything else that over the course of writing the book that you learned that oh. you thought was particularly interesting? Yeah, there was so much, uh, Paul, there's so much there. Um, one of the things that I spent a lot of time on was how did December 25th become Christmas? Um, I really knew, a good detail, a good about a good amount about the biblical story, because of course I've written on, it, I teach on it, but I really felt like if I was going to write a book on Christmas, I had to answer this question: How did December twenty fifth become Christmas? And so, you know, there are people out there who are always desperate to try to prove that Jesus is born in winter. Jesus is born on December twenty fifth. They do all kinds of interesting things by trying to calculate when the Annunciation to Zechariah was. Some people say. Well, the Annunciation of Zechariah happened on this Jewish feast. And so therefore, Jesus born six months later than John the Baptist. And uh, we can find it is on December 25th. And a lot of those things, I mean, they just don't hold up. Luke doesn't tell us this information. Uh, some people will go out and say, well, in Luke, the shepherds are out in the field. And so therefore, it can't possibly be the case that Jesus is born in winter in Luke's gospel because the shepherds were, were, wouldn't be out there with their sheep in the winter. And actually, that's not entirely the case. We have evidence from Jewish sources that uh, shepherds would be out there with their sheep, for example, in, in February, which is winter, one of the coldest months of the year. And so, um, no, it, it, we really shouldn't hang too much weight on that. But when you start looking at the early church fathers, you realize there is no apostolic tradition that's handed down on this particular point. Uh, already in the 200s, Clement of Alexandria is telling us that there are people who are speculating about when Jesus was born. And he said that there's, they have different opinions, but it's clear there's no clear answer. There's no hmm. obvious answer to this. Yeah. And Clement gives all kinds of dates, and he's using the ancient Egyptian calendar, but none of those dates correspond to what would be December 25th in the earliest accounts. Um, he does tell us that some pagan, I'm sorry, that some heretics, uh, as he's, you know, this, this group that believes that Jesus uh, becomes the Son of God as his baptism rather than is the eternal Son of God, they believe that Jesus' baptism takes place on January 6th, that's the Epiphany, uh, but that's not quite the same thing as Jesus's birth, of course. And so um, it, it, as I looked at it, it was, it was just really fascinating to 
to look at how they they come to identify December 25th as the birth of Jesus. Even, even the Christians in Bethlehem, you'd think, you know, here are the ones that were closest to the actual event. Uh, they very early on pass on traditions about the cave where Jesus is said to be born. So they're very confident about being able to place the location of Jesus's birth. Yeah. They don't have a clear early tradition about when Jesus or where, yeah, what time of year Jesus is born. Actually, they're, they, the earliest evidence is that they were celebrating on January 6th, not December hmm. 5th. So what happens is, as we look at these various sources, um, we, we come to discover that um, they really believe that um, uh, it's important to correlate Jesus's birth with um, uh, December 25th, because on that day, uh, we have the winter solstice. And the winter solstice had great cosmic significance to people in the ancient world. Of course, they didn't have electric lighting. So they were keenly aware of the day that, you know, marked the time when daylight would begin to grow. And this had tremendous meaning. And what the early Christians want to do is basically explain that the cosmos has its meaning in Jesus, that he is the true son of righteousness. And of course, you know, uh, there's a, a lyric uh, that we all know, Hail the Son of Righteousness. That is an allusion to a prophecy in the book of Malachi that was understood to be about Christ by the early church. He is the hmm. true Son of Righteousness who's coming. So that chapter took me longer than all the other chapters combined because <laughs> there's such, um, there's so much misinformation out there. There are some people that say, well, you can coordinate exactly when Zechariah would have been serving in the temple. But if you look at it, you can't. Uh, and you can read my book and explain all the arguments for that. But, um, but there are people who really make these claims. Um, and I wanted to research it and study it. And the best information is in peer-reviewed scholarly journals that most people don't have access to and in really expensive scholarly books that are really technical. And so... Um, I felt like it would be really helpful to have a, a, a book that lays out the story of what really happened there. So um, that was something that was very, very interesting to me, and I learned a lot about it. Great. Yeah, it's, it's, it's inter interesting to see how these sort of uh, public perceptions of, of Christmas can be not even necessarily untrue, but just maybe we can't verify them as much as, <laughs> as, much as some people might like. Um, right. I, mean, I just want to say, you know, some people yeah. will be like troubled. Well, wait, so Jesus isn't actually born December 25th. Well, remember that in, in the early church, Easter Sunday does not mark the actual day of Jesus's resurrection either. Actually, it was the heretics who insisted that you had to correlate Easter with Passover, right? Because we know that the uh, you know, Holy Week in the Gospels takes place against the backdrop of, of, of the Passover. And the church said, no, this is not necessary. We really just want to make sure that we celebrate the Easter Sunday on a Sunday. That's, that's what's important. But it doesn't have to be the precise date. And the reason for that is Christianity isn't just about antiquarianism, right? It isn't just about looking back at the past. Christmas is ultimately about Christ's coming. And, of course, he comes to us every time we celebrate the Mass. That's why we call it. Christ Mass, right? Christ Mass, literally, Mass is right there in the Word. You pointed out earlier that, you know, people always talk about not taking Christ out of Christmas. But, you know, there's another word there in the word Christmas. Uh, and I, I have a, a, a Protestant friend. He's a biblical scholar, a great biblical scholar. And a few years ago, um, he posted on his Facebook page something to the effect that 
I find it really strange that my fellow evangelical friends are troubled that we take Christ out of Christmas, but they seem unconcerned about the fact that we don't do anything about the Mass on Christmas, you know. And, 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 and it is true that for the early church fathers, it was really important that Jesus is born and laid in a manger in the Christmas story. The manger yeah. is a feeding trough, and it's where you put the food for the animals. Of course, Jerome and others uh, would point out that Jesus is born in Bethlehem. Bethlehem literally means Beth, house, lechem, bread. Jesus is born in the house of bread. And so they would see in Christmas in anticipation of the Eucharist. Yeah. And, and one of the things I explained in the book, and this was one of the most exciting things for me in the book, is that, um, you know, we often see, you know, that Jesus was laid in a manger because there was no room in the inn. And so it's like, well, what's going on there? Is there like no vacancy signs up in the Hotel Bethlehem or something? You know, what, what's going on? This inn, is it like a hotel? Is it a motel? Well, actually, the word inn is a bad translation for the Greek word. Because the Greek word there is not the word that Luke uses later for in. Pendokion is the word for in. It's, it appears in the story of the Good Samaritan, right? Where the Good Samaritan takes the, the man who's been beaten and he puts him in an inn and he tells the innkeeper, take care of him and I'll pay you back when I return. Yeah. And the innkeeper is fine with that. Um, in, in the gospel story, there is no innkeeper, right? And, and there's no, you know, cruel jewish figure who tells mary go out in the middle of the night and give birth in the cold you know like you often see in these movies that's not in the biblical story at all that the key is and we miss it i'm not just interested in myth busting here it, there's a spiritual meaning here the word that's translated in is kataluma it, it's better translated room it's the same word that luke uses later for the upper room right hmm. when jesus goes into the upper room yeah. what does he do he says, take this, this is my body, eat, right? He, he presents himself to us as food when he goes in the room. And so in the infancy narrative, Jesus can't be in the room, he can't be in the kataluma, so they put him in the manger. So the manger is a substitute for the room. And then later when he's in the room, he explains how he has come to us as food. So I think it's really important to catch that, otherwise we're missing a Eucharistic implication that the early church fathers saw saw as very important every time we go to mass it's a little christmas for the church fathers because right. we're going back to the manger right we're receiving christ as our bread from heaven and the christmas story is anticipation of the mass and so it's no coincidence that on sunday what do we do we sing glory to god in the highest where do we get that from the angels on the night of jesus's birth right mm. every time we celebrate the mass we have a little christmas so that's great yeah see and, and we all get the benefit of, of your research because we don't all speak Koine Greek, so right. <laughs> we don't notice those things. Uh, there's an, another uh, uh, another thing that, that jumped out at me. There's kind of a, a fundamental a fundamental question, you know, coming up behind the book is uh, so does it matter that we understand the true meaning of Christmas? So what I mean by that is the kind of uh, secular approach to Christmas is about love, family, friendship. You know that sort of thing. So, what's what's wrong with that, or or why does that fall short? Why is it important? So, know, what I want to do in the book, one of the things I try to do is break a wall down between what people think as the secular Christmas and the biblical Christmas, or you know, the the Christian idea of Christmas. Uh, I I don't usually I don't think that's a helpful way to think of Christmas, and that's because so much of what people think is secular is actually at root very much tied to the 
to the meaning of Christ's birth, right? So, um, for example, oftentimes people disparage Santa Claus. They don't like Santa Claus. Santa Claus is the secular Christmas. Well, you know, if you look at that, Santa Claus is really Saint Nicholas. And there was a, there's a great story to be told about how Saint Nicholas became associated with Christmas. It's the last chapter of my book. But I, I encourage people to check it out. I'm really excited about this. I, I learned a lot. thought it was really fascinating. So, of course, Nicholas is famous for a famous episode where he gives to his neighbor, uh, gives to a man who's in desperate circumstances. I don't need to get into all the details here. And he helps the man, but he does so anonymously. He tries to throw gold coins into the man's house at night when he's sleeping. And according to later retellings, um, the windows were locked, so he had to throw them down the chimney. And the man's daughters had hung up their stockings by the chimney, and the coins fell into the daughter's stockings. So that's where we get the custom of hanging up uh, stockings by the chimney. It's from the story of St. Nicholas. But the whole point of the story is that Nicholas gives in accord with Christ's mandate. That is, don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing, as he says in the Sermon on the Mount. Let your father see your gift giving in secret. And so by the Middle Ages, nuns were already bringing gifts to poor children and signing them with the name Nicholas. Why? Because as one great scholar put it, to give in a Christian manner is to be a secret Santa. Right. Because that's what. So the reason Santa Claus emerges as a figure is associated with gift giving is because we are encouraged to be like him. Christ isn't born for his sake. It's not like he's up in heaven saying, you know, I like to check out the Mediterranean this time of year. You know, I wonder what it looks like. No, he comes down for us men and for our salvation, as we say in the creed. He comes down for our sake. The reason Jesus is born is to make us saints. And we see that in St. Nicholas. Nicholas is an is a icon of this. And so what ends up happening is after the Protestant Reformation, um, in a lot of Protestant countries, there's a turn away from the idea of honoring saints and, and asking for the saints' intercession. And, and then also a movement away from the liturgical calendar. Because, wait, where's December 25th in the Bible? It's not in the Bible, so we shouldn't celebrate it. And so what ends up happening is people still want to honor Christmas and have some kind of festivities at Christmas. So what ends up happening is in a lot of, especially Protestant countries, um, Christmas becomes a kind of raucous, drunken celebration. People go door to door and they go wassailing and wassailing has a negative connotation in a lot of places uh, because they basically come and they insist that if you don't give us gifts, we're, we're, we're going to beat you up. Right. And so so th there was a sense that we really need to do something that create a, a better sense of what Christmas is all about. And it's a Protestant by the name of John Pintard, who ends up uh, promoting St. Nicholas at, uh, at a banquet in New York. And his close friends are people like Washington Irving, the great writer. And so Santa Claus becomes uh, a major figure largely because of this desire to have uh, a saint, to have a, a key figure can remind us of what Christmas is all about. Now, I don't know if you're still here, Paul. I feel like you're you're missing an action, or maybe my internet is not working. So um, I guess what I'll do is I'll just say that for me, that, that, that idea people have of a secular Christmas 
or a um, religious Christmas really misses out on the fact that, in fact, much of what we see in Christmas customs today have a deeply biblical meaning and a deeply Christian meaning. And so I, I don't like this idea that you know Santa Claus is the enemy or the icon of something that we should oppose. I think we just need to better understand the true meaning, if you will, of, of Santa Claus. So anyway, yeah, we lost you there for, for a second, Paul, but I just finished the answer uh, to the question and just explained I think that, you know, the key here is not recognizing in Santa Claus and other things people say as secular Christmas, um, uh, something that's antithetical to Christianity, but really recognizing that in most cases, these things are really emerging out of Christian tradition and out of a desire to return us to the gospel, even Dickens, right? So when people think of the secular Christmas, they often think of Charles Dickens. Um, Andy Williams has a song, it's the most wonderful time of the year. And nowhere in the song does he mention anything having to do with the Bible, except there's a kind of oblique reference to glories of Christmas long ago. And the word glory might remind us of Christmas. And then he also talks about um, scary ghost stories in the song. And um, that is, of course, a reference. uh, We can see a reference in it, of course, to a Dickens famous story. Then you go back to Charles Dickens story about Scrooge. Uh, you'll see things, as I explained in my book, that you'll never find in adaptations of the story on film or television. So, for example, at the beginning of the book, Scrooge is deci- described as a hardened sinner. The whole point of the story is the conversion of a sinner. And right. at the end of the story, before Scrooge goes to Tiny Tim's house, if you read the story, he doesn't go to Tiny Tim's house first. When he wakes up and discovers he hasn't missed Christmas, we've all seen that in the in the retellings of it, he does something that's not ever presented on television. It says he went to church. Yeah, we I've, I've never seen a depiction that I know of. Maybe I missed it of Scrooge first going to church, singing the hymns in church, and you know being a Christian in church and honoring, of course, Jesus. And you see, at the very beginning of the book, when Fred is explaining to his uncle Scrooge why Christmas is important, he says, "Well, it's important first of all because of its sacred name, right? And that's why we should venerate this day." So uh, Dickens isn't even like antithetical to the biblical meaning of Christmas. Um, no, I think the true meaning of Christmas is found in, in Christ's coming. And uh, so that's one of the major themes. And I'm trying to debunk the idea that some of these other things are, you know, foreign to Christian celebration or recognition of, yeah. of Christmas. Great. And, uh, one, uh, I think we have time for a, at least one more question here. Sure. Um, would you say that this book would be uh, just for Catholics, or would it be useful to non-Catholics as well? Right. So originally, initially, uh, I was going to write a book called Christmas, What Every Catholic Should Know. And then the more I thought about it, the more I realized, you know, this is a season that lots of people are interested in. So I want there to be a book that people can give to just about anyone. You know, if it says Catholic on the cover, people will be like, "Oh, I don't want to, I don't want to read that." So, yeah. what, I, what I'm, what I'm really trying to do is look at the biblical story and show how it's been interpreted, especially by the early church writers like Augustine and Jerome, even earlier writers like Origen, um, and you know, the this apocryphal non-biblical account called the Proto Evangelium of James, other things like that. So, you know, I, I really hope that this isn't a book just for Catholics. It's really a book 
for anybody. I really feel like that is true of my other book on salvation. I really didn't write that just for Catholics, even though it's in the What Every Catholic Should Know series. I hope anybody can read it. And so on the back cover, you know, we got blurbs from non-Catholic biblical scholars uh, who appreciated the book. So, uh, you know, I'm I'm really trying to write a book that you can give to anyone and hopefully anybody will find interested. So, or find find interesting. So if you want to know, you know, who the Magi are, what is this mysterious Christmas star? uh, What's going on with the shepherds? Why shepherds? And who's Gabriel anyway? Why is he a major part of the story? All these kind of things. I, I wanted to bring it out for just about anybody who's interested. Great. Well, thank you so much for, for your time and uh, discussing this book as we get we inch nearer and nearer to Christmas here. Um, I know. Paul, well, can, a- I, can I just add that, you know, the, yeah, uh, um, on the formed platform that the AI uh, promotes, uh, we're putting out regular little short videos based on the book. You know, how Santa St. Nicholas becomes Santa Claus. Why do we have Christmas trees? But then also the biblical story as well. They're just like five minutes long. They're real short, but we're hoping people will find them interesting and share them and pass them on to other people and maybe learn something about Christmas that will help them enter into it in a more meaningful way. Great. And so that's formed.org. Formed.org. There's apps um, on, on on various devices as well. Yeah. yeah, and I'm tweeting it. So if you want to look for just me on Twitter, you'll find all the videos that way. If you don't know what to look for, you just look for the Augustine Institute uh, on Twitter, and I'm sure you'll find some stuff there. So anyway, we're just trying to get it out there. Just trying yeah, to get it out there. Absolutely. And you can find the book, The True Meaning of Christmas, uh, at Ignatius.com and uh, at your local Catholic bookstore. So again, thank thank you for... Oh, oh one more thing I should have mentioned yeah, yeah. is uh, we were very pleased, even though the book is... Uh, meant to be accessible, every chapter starts with a Christmas song. So we, we start with, you know, Round Yon Virgin. What does that mean? Why is that part of the song, you know? Um, yeah. and, and other Christmas songs for each chapter. So I want to make it accessible, but I also wanted to make it reliable because as I did the research, I realized most books on Christmas have all kinds of stuff in it that are really questionable. So yeah. we got John Cavadini, who's a famous Christian scholar, church historian, yeah. theologian, to write the foreword to the book. Um, and, you know, hopefully people will recognize, okay, wow, you know, th- these are serious scholars here. Um, we can trust this, but, you know, we're starting with Christmas songs. Can't be that yeah. technical and difficult to understand. And that's a great, that's a great way to kind of summarize the, the, I don't know, approach of the book is that it's this great scholarship, but very approachable, you know, Thanks. for, for people So, yeah. So, all right, again, thank you. Thank you for being with us and, uh, Um, Let's do this again for your next book. Great. I'm all for it. This podcast has been brought to you by Ignatius Press. We encourage you to check out our books and videos at your local Catholic bookstore or wherever else books and videos are sold. You can also sign up to receive special discounts on books and videos at Ignatius.com. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. Please like the podcast on the website or app from which you listen to it. And please tell your friends about it. I'm Mark Brumley, and on behalf of everyone at Ignatius Press, thanks for listening.